Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Kelly Gallup, and he'll be answering your most important questions on the Madison River. The show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Kelly a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Kelly Gallup about the Madison River. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho, and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware and New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International core values remained unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all types of fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join the Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. It's flyfishersinternational.org. Before we introduce Kelly, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. We have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Kelly's section that says click here to register for the drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. And thanks to Kelly, we'll also be giving away a copy of his latest book, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout 2. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question, or it could be two questions, um, will be about something we talk about during the show. So you just submit your answer along with your name and location in that text box on our homepage. And it's the same text box you use during the show to ask questions. So... Uh, listen closely, take good notes, and maybe you'll win Kelly's book, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout Number 2. And if you don't win, you can go to slidein.com and order a book directly from Kelly there. That's the only place you'll be able to get it outside of winning tonight. So um, so check that out, slidein.com, right, Kelly? Yes, sir. That's it. Okay, well, our guest tonight is Kelly Gallant. Uh Kelly started his fly fishing career at the age of 13, tying flies for the local tackle shop. He's been uh, has over 40 national recognized fly patterns. He started guiding at the age of 16 and is still guiding to this day some 30 years later. He owned and operated the Troutsman <laughs> Fly Shop in uh, northern Michigan from 1981 to 2002 and 
the spring of 2002, he sold the Troutsman and moved to Montana, where he bought the slide-in lodge on the Madison River. Kelly's written three books, Modern Screamers for Trophy Trout, Modern Screamers for Trophy Trout Two, and Cripples and Spinners. Kelly's also been published in every major fly fishing periodical in the country, and one of the, was one of the editors at large for Fly Fisher Magazine. He's also one of the hosts of Fly Fish TV on the, and the, uh, the Outdoor Life Network. In 2004, Kelly was nominated and received the Living Legend Award by the Federation of Fly Fishers. Well, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing, Kelly. Well, thanks, Roger. We're going to have to update that. Uh, we're going to have to update that for those You're who know. There, now. There, there was a 16-year <laughs> deficit in there. <laughs> I go. You're not getting older, are you, Kelly? 16 Jeez. plus 30. Wow, I'm missing. 16 years. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Oh, well. Okay. Good well, stuff. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll fix that up. Uh, That's all right. Yeah. I should update these things. <laughs> all right. Um, well, listen, um, lots to talk about tonight and uh, about the Madison River. And I was just up there a few weeks ago fishing in your neck of the woods and uh, had lots of fun up there. Had some, just got out of there before that huge early fall storm you got. In fact, we had to cut our trip two days short because of that. But, which um, one? Never stop. Which one? <laughs> the one at the end of September. Uh, yeah. A week, yeah, ago, a week ago, I got another one. I got about 11 inches. It was ridiculous. Yeah. This uh, last winter hasn't quit yet. It didn't, yeah, it, quit yet. It never really knew it was summer this year. Uh, yeah, well, we had good weather up until then, but then we got this notice that uh, when we were in West Yellowstone that there's going to be 8 to 18 inches the next day in snow. And we said, well, we're out of here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Good idea. Well, to- towing a boat and stuff, I didn't want to be fighting, you know, snow drifts up there. So yeah. we, we headed mm-hmm. south. <laughs> anyway, right, so let's, yeah, let's talk about the Madison. Um, uh, we've got some general questions that came in uh, just about, uh, you know, the, the river itself and then, Mm-hmm. What I'd like to do is uh, dig into the different sections and have you tell us about those sections of how they fish, sure. what we need to look at, and and, and so forth. So um, uh, lots of questions to go through. Um, Ken McClure in Las Vegas, Nevada, wrote in and said, uh, "What is the best time to fish the Madison Park, uh, spring or fall?" It's left out summer. <laughs> but yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, for for my money, the fall is a better time just because. It depends. I mean, you, you know, you frequently have runoff in the spring, but if you can time it right, the spring fishing's spectacular. And I mean, it, it gets early hatches. Everything happens, you know, man. Sometimes as much as a month early from everything else. Uh, but it does. It gets a great hatch. You know, all types of bugs all the way through the season. But the fall fishing, to me, I mean, you're going to have for the overall. You know. It's easier to time your weather. You can get cold, but generally it's pretty pretty stable. But you don't ever have to worry about spring runoffs if that's what he means, like the traditional spring, you know, early June. Yeah, because uh, yeah. it can get pretty big up there and cancel you out. Generally, you can get on the fire hole. Uh, it's good, but I, I think overall, if you especially early fall, you just have you've got so many options. You know, you've got the east mm-hmm. sides always open. And that's the problem is that so much in the spring in the in the park is is blown out. I mean, because that's you're feeding the world right there, and so 
Right. It can be tough to, you know, it pretty much takes the east side of the park out, all the Lamar Valley and all that for the most part. So, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's always when's good, the, but it falls a little more predictable, I'd say. When's the runoff usually? Is it like latter part of May into June? or? Yeah, yeah, usually. You know, and then, but over on the east side, I mean, you're so high up there, that can go in way late. I mean, that can go into July. and. Mm-hmm. So it just limits you, and it puts more people. But I, you know, that time of year, the, usually the fire holes what people are after then anyway, because the dry fly fishing. So yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I can go uh, pretty late on the east side. Frank Cada uh, in Loveland, Colorado. I uh, since I fished the Madison on and off for 60 years. Wow. I now see a lot of boats on the river. When is the best time of year to avoid the crowds? Boat traffic-wise, be it, it's tough because, you know, the, the peak season, I mean, to, to avoid them, if he's walking, I don't know if he means if he's one of the boats also or if he's walk wading, but early season and, you know, from pretty much mid-October on, you're not going to see, see a lot of boats out there. I mean, it's partly, you know, just the popularity of the river. There's more guides. There's more people. It's mostly, if you look around, everybody has a drift boat now. I mean, it used uh-huh. to be kind of a novelty. I mean, you you drive any town in the West, and about every third house has got a drift boat in its driveway. So <laughs> it's pretty tough to get away from them anywhere. But, I mean, the other thing is, well, I assume that Frank's walking. And so to stay away from them, it has to be pretty early season, or it'd have to be pretty late because it's just busy. And the yep. Madison proper, if you stay in the upper seven below, you know, from my place down to uh, Lions Bridge, you don't see as many um, mm-hmm. just because it's a weight only. Well, it's not weight only. It's, you can float it, but you can't fish from the boat. Uh, that's one way. Or so they just you want know. you moving through that area. Um, yeah. Yep. And, You're and just get there. out and wait, right? Yep. And you just you don't see that many boats up. I think uh, last year total guide boats in the in that stretch was 56, I think. So they're trying to re-reg our river here a little bit, and they're trying to put it's going to be completely on the guides. You know they can only regulate us, but you know when looking at the use on that through the from FWPs. Fish, Wildlife, and Parks stats on our on guiding. There's only 56 boats in the upper river. So, and if you go up between the lakes, there you and, and all the way into the park from that part, you don't see any boats. Yeah. Occasionally, you'll see somebody well, cross with one, but that's it. I think we were up there the, the third week in September, and there were boats, but it wasn't it wasn't obnoxious no. at all. No, when you it know, gets crazy, I mean, there's so many crazy. miles. Yeah. yeah. Of river, and it's crazy uh, is during the big bug hatches. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Then everybody comes down. Yeah. 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 Well, you say that they won't, um, you know, that they'll only regulate the guides, but, um, you know, it could come to the point of like a lot of the major rivers here in the West for uh, whitewater rafting. Um, mm-hmm. The guides have all the access and the public has very little. I mean, yeah, the format they looked at was completely the opposite. When, yeah. I mean, it's still it's still ongoing. It's been quite a battle for the yeah. last year and a half. But uh, there was no regulating the public. It was completely on the guides, and mm-hmm. that didn't go over too well. But but 
Yeah, it's a tough one. The state doesn't want to. They don't. They'd like everybody to recreate, and so it's it's a tough it's a tough situation. Hopefully yeah, we just get more gets... people, and and we don't get any more water. <laughs> no, <laughs> and everybody thinks it's the other person's fault. <laughs> Whenever we talk about that SOB on the other side of the river, we forget that he's looking at us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Bob Dunn in Sutherland, Vermont, uh, asked, uh, he says, has the river changed in the last 20 years due to climate, pesticides from homes and golf courses and invasive species? Uh, zero. That's one of the things that all this study's been done is that we've had, uh, well, no one can say what climate does to anything, but our water temperatures are pretty well stable over a 100-year period. Pesticides mm -hmm. aren't really a big deal here. Well, part of the, the climate thing, too, on the temps is that we're a, you know, a mid-feed reservoir. So the, the Madison has a really unique situation. I, to the best of my knowledge, it's the only river uh, in the world like this, and somebody will probably correct me, but that I've ever heard of. This river is completely regulated for fishery. It's not – it has no – hydro draw, it has no irrigation draw, it's the FERC licensing on the dams is completely predicated on fisheries, so they run the water on this river to keep constant water temperatures. So climate would have a, you know, if it didn't have a dam, that might have an issue, but it doesn't on us. Uh, pesticides, it's just very little agriculture in this area that's even close to the river. There are no golf courses. Uh, so, in the homes-wise, I mean, that's just visual impact. You know, you don't see, there's very few houses on the river. I mean, uh -huh. they're really close to it. And very few, right down by town. You know, a couple up here, me and a couple other people. Uh, but everybody's that I can think of has got a little, there's quite a buffer between their houses yeah. and the river. So, invasive species-wise, now that's another that's another kettle of worms. I mean, we've went through, we've had a lot of things. Didymo, I mean, that's pretty heavy at times. You know, obviously the whirling disease, which this river got hit, uh, which I'm not sure it was ever is quite as bad as people say. But we did have it, for sure. But it not, I mean, as far as the health of the river, I don't think we've ever really been in better shape than we are right now. So overall, Yeah, I noticed... Um well, the states Wyoming and um, Montana get really serious about you know the you know checking like we got checked in Wyoming we had to stop in Florida mm -hmm. to get the boat checked um, mm -hmm. we had to get the boat checked when we went into Montana you know um, the, the park you know uh, sure. have, there's you know no felt waders in the park now uh, so all those things are you know people are getting serious about it that's, yeah it's all all invasive species I mean that's it's yeah. pretty hard to, it's so, and there's so much water connected to each other, you know, and it's so hard, but at least we're doing, we're, they're trying, you know, they're doing what they can to, I mean, a lot of it's the mud snail and the, uh, well, the big one right, is right now the zebra mussels, because, you know, growing up in Michigan, that was kind of the, that was going to be the kiss of death for the lake for a long time. Everybody thought that was going to end it, and, of course, now they're showing up out here, but. Uh, I just, Mel and I were driving over to the big hole the other day, and uh, we saw this sign that said, it was a billboard out on the expressway, and it said zero lakes in Montana have uh, have been infected with invasive mussels. So 
that's pretty cool because they can yeah. uh, they can take over in a hurry. I mean, and they don't just stick to that; they go to the rivers too. So, yeah, yeah, and and the um, uh, the Madison is all uh, wild fish, right? Yes, I mean, all no rivers in Montana. Yeah, yeah, all rivers, yeah. which is really cool, I think too. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it works. They they stack some of the lakes, but they don't stack mm-hmm. any of the rivers. Yeah, um, Phil McCartney in uh, Kentucky. You want to know what big changes have you seen on the Madison over the years, and are there any challenges that the fishery faces that concern you? And he want to say thanks for all your YouTube videos that you've posted, which is. Yeah, folks, if you haven't gone out and searched uh, for for Kelly's videos, he's got all kinds of videos on tying and fishing and all kinds of stuff, so check it out. Well, well, thanks, Phil. Uh, You know, the biggest change I would say I've seen in the river, uh, I started fishing it in 79, I think. Uh, I don't think I've seen, other than, you know, it's, it's mostly just human. There's just more people, so the... You know, people walk into my shop. I'll have you know, hundred people a day ask me where to fish, and and I just you know that it's Johnny's line. He's you know, fish the people. You know, go to where they aren't, and so that's the biggest change is that you know there's just more of us. It doesn't matter if yeah. it's the Madison or anywhere else. And the challenge of that is just you know, a it's that social factor where the you want to deal with anybody, see anybody, the solitude thing. and uh, But I haven't seen anything really that I think is adversely affecting the river other than that, that component. I mean, the river's in the best shape. It's in as good a shape as it's ever been. Fish counts, yeah. uh, there's nothing, everything there has been good. But And, you know, you, you just can't fix crowding. You, you can't fix it. Personally, I don't even think it's that bad. I I, I virtually never can't get away from people, uh, yeah. I mean, including guiding. I mean, we we go out early. We leave at six in the morning, and it's nothing for us to fish all day and not see a human being. But if you start at eight o'clock, you're going to see a few uh, dozens, <laughs> so, <laughs> a few dozens, uh, hundreds. I don't know. But you know, it's just part of it is uh, for the for the river proper. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure. I have seen it change that much. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just the fact that there's more of us here and, you know, it, it's just... Well, and it's usually the, it the thing, too, of if you're waiting, if you just are willing to walk away, uh, mm-hmm. usually, you know, yeah. you can get away from the crowds. Um, yeah, I mean, you but, walk 10 minutes here and 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 there's... And, and the, one of the changes is, is you can't go to the designated fly, well, not necessarily fly only, but you can't go to, like, $3 bridge and be alone. It's just not going to happen. I don't care if it's five below uh-huh. zero and it's December. You're not going. You might have to challenge yourself to go to new places, which is cool because you find new water. And, uh-huh. uh, it's just that would be the only change that can, and, and it doesn't truly concern me. It's, it's funny because we had this, well, I don't know if I'd say it's funny, but it's it's different. We had this study that we've been working with on this new regulations, and and you know we're touting the highest number of users ever, but we we also had the highest fish counts. And so, mm. you know, one model of thought there would be the more people, the more fish. I don't believe that, but but yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. it's just the fishery is so healthy from, uh, you know, partly management, mostly from that 
from the water. You know, that we, we had the problem with the dam for 12 years, and we're back to the – and even that didn't really adversely hurt the fishery. Yeah. Uh, it, it had yeah. some effect on some bugs, and, you know, you'll have the people – no matter what happens, people will say, I remember when it was better. Well, everything was better in the old days. That we've got more fish uh, yeah. more fish, more people, but it really yeah. it concerns me from a social aspect that you know making sure people can get along and but yeah. you know we we run a lot of guides down the river and we run a lot of trips and hundreds of people a day and come into the shop and you know it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare to have a uh, something that's negative, you know. Yeah. Occasionally, landowner, you know, barking at somebody or something. But uh, overall, I don't really see it that it's not as bad as some of the stuff I hear about. But yeah, you know, yeah. people saying, "Oh, it's too damn busy." As well, go somewhere else. You know, yeah. you're part of the problem. <laughs> like I said, you're part of the problem when you're bitching. Yeah. Enough, you're part of the problem, and there's yeah. thousands of cricks and lakes and everything oh. else around here so if you know but yeah we wanna... uh we went mm-hmm. to a, a place outside of bozeman uh one day and uh i'm not saying where but uh we didn't see anybody else fishing that day no <laughs> so you, you mean, know there, you, there are places you can walk to go. up a creek around here and have it to yourself and it feeds yeah. into the madison or yeah. or just go take a walk you know, just go yeah. where there's not an access point. Look for your public land and just walk in on it. You can, yeah, you can. There you go. You'd be amazed how much serenity is out there if you'll walk. Yeah, this. yeah, you can find there. Well, we got to take a, a quick break here, Kelly, and we'll be right back, and uh, we'll start talking about the different sections here. Okay. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. They're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kelly Gallup about the Madison River. If you'd like to ask Kelly a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Kelly, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? I know, um, tell us about the, the new book you finished and uh, if you've got anything, uh, you know, going on this winter that we should know about. Oh, ironically, just listening to that commercial, I do. I bought a lodge with my neighbor, Kip, down in Abaco. And no, I oh. didn't get, I, I'm saying, uh, it, was, uh, it used to be the Rickman Lodge. Uh, it's now going to have a new name, but, yeah, just we just got that, and so I'll be, down there a little bit more than normal, and so that'll be fun. And other than that, not much. Just the book coming out. That was a well. That was an adventure. Got that. <laughs> that uh, they always are. You always swear you'll never write another book after you finish one. But that was an adventure. But just the biggest thing is the new lodge, and that'll be hopefully next year around here talking about fishing 
bonefish and permit in Abaco or, or some new oh, flies. Abaco, that are coming uh, Abaco uh, where, is it on the south part of the island? Yes, yeah, it's a uh, sandy point. It's, uh, so it got missed by the hurricane? Yep. I mean, we got yeah. some, but, I mean, uh, I, I, you get a little bit of survivor's remorse because, I mean, so many people, I mean, just yeah. got everything like taken. White and, got oh, my God, he leveled, got wiped think, out. Huh? Yeah, it was tragic. And so, and we we were just on the other end, you know, we're on the south, the tip, and it, we had some big winds and did, you know, a little bit of damage uh, or some roof damage and, you know, but nothing, I mean, not Nothing can compare what happened up at Marsh Harbor. It was tragic. So, yeah, yeah, yeah it was it was awful. But uh, well, hopefully, we can get down there. We're going to have a big fundraiser this spring fishing tournament. We've got a, yeah. some buddies working yeah. on it right now, so it'll be fun to put some money yeah, back in cool. there. Yeah. Well, tell us about your book. What uh, Modern what Streamers Two was? It was kind of it's a. Uh, Kind of just taking the next step, we're trying to follow through on a lot of the questions that we were asked. Uh, you know, when the first book came out, just seemed like there was things left unsaid and technique-wise and refinery on the technique, you know, things had changed a bit and equipment and the flies. When Bob and I wrote the first book, uh, there weren't articulated streamers. And so that was a, probably the biggest change. I mean, we actually, we were working on articulated stuff, and we, we actually tried to stop the press to, to get them to wait, and it had just gone too far. But this one I published myself, so I didn't have to, uh, I was actually trying to speed up the press. But um, it's more technique, uh, more fly, some more, you know, just background on the techniques and why, and, uh, you know, mostly just a... It's 15, 20 years later, so that's yeah, what it yeah. is. Yeah, great, great. Well, looking forward to the, seeing that, yeah. and uh, Yeah, well, if I'd have sent you yours when I was supposed to, <laughs> we could have <laughs> talked more about it. <laughs> well, uh, people will just have to buy it from you and, and investigate <laughs> themselves, huh? Yeah. So, um, yeah, because uh, just to be clear about that, you're not going to find it on Amazon um, because uh, – Kelly's, at least not yet, uh, no. Kelly's self-published it, and so you'll get it right from his shop. Uh, yeah, we're selling direct for a, a while. There'll be a couple shops that are going to have them here. Uh, I, I had to get through the, the first rush, and, you know, it was it, it's yeah. all we've done for a month or two is pack books up, and so then we'll release yeah. it here pretty quick to the shops. Okay, good, good. All right, so let's um, talk more about the Madison. Um, generally, with... Um, the water access laws in Montana. Um, what is public access like in the lower and, and the upper section of, of the Madison? Well, the the very upper, the park, obviously, that's all wide open. And yeah. pretty much from Lions Bridge up, it's it's incredible, which would take you all the way to into the park. That's all public. Between the lakes, which is between Hebgen and Quake, 100% federal. Uh, down to me is federal, and then uh, pretty much you got the high water mark. You stay within the high water mark, you can access any of it. But there is, there, especially in this upper seven miles, there's just it's just unbelievable amount of uh, access. And then if you get on, you know, if you get on the the oh, there's all kinds of Onyx and some of those guys, the different apps, 
you can see that there's a there all the access points, obviously all the bridges, but there's inter intermixed throughout the river. There's just a, a ton of public access on the Madison. You get below, like below Bear Trap or, or below uh, Ennis Lake, and it's pretty much all the way down to Warm Springs. It's wide open. That's miles and miles. And then, but I mean, it's pretty much if you go to the bridges, and there's there's a fair number of them. And there's a lot of federal ground on those too. All the takeouts have accesses, so mm -hmm. there's a ton of it. And that's one of the things we were talking about earlier when uh, I think it was Phil that, or, or no, it was Frank that asked about the, all the boats. I mean, if you go down to those access points and take off walking, uh, you know, get out of the walkway only, because it's kind of like when you designate something flies only. Everybody goes to the flies only water. Well, the water's good on both sides of it. You can say <laughs> up and down is still good. And same here, if you go to, just go to a bridge that's not designated walk only and take off walking. And yeah. I can't think of one that doesn't have just a really good fishing by it. And it would spread, you know, I go downstream routinely about 16 miles and cross the bridge and walk upstream, and I don't see anybody. And I mean, I go down in July during yeah. the salmon flies, and I go upstream where the boat's put in. And as long as I'm not there at 4.30, I don't see anybody. Yeah. And so yeah. it's, you know, there's just a lot of it. And yeah. not to mention yeah. all the creeks that dump in. There's a lot of creeks that are have public access on them. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about, uh, kind of broke it out into three sections. The, mm -hmm. the lower Madison from Three Forks to Innis, Lake, and then from Ennis up to Quake and Hebgen, and then in the park. So, okay. um, so three forks up to Ennis. Um, uh, kind of tell us about what that water's like and, and, and how it fishes through there. Well, that's the most diverse section of water in the entire river because if you go to Ennis Lake, from Ennis Lake down uh, for about half three quarters of a mile, is it's a it's a nice bouldery stretch. Uh, and then you get down and you get below the, the hydro dam the, and you're into the bear trap. That's the really, that is the white water. Now you're heading just off Annis Lake. I'm going downstream. And right. so you go through the bear trap canyon, which is, you know, that is class five white water in the middle of the, in the, at the certain times of the year. And it's, there's threes and fours and fives through there. And then it gets down to, well, above that, but just call it Warm Springs is where the uh, the next landing is. From there down, it gets kind of, it broadens out uh, a lot and gets kind of, you know, there's some riffles and stuff, but nothing like in the upper water, nothing like the bear trap and uh, all of that. And so you, you go down and it just, it gets more flat, you know. There's not the contour to the water. You don't have the elevation drop, so you're not really ripping through there. And then all the way to the forks, I mean, it really, there's a few sections in there, braids and stuff, and, but for the most part, it's just a, it's just more, oh, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't call it like the Missouri, but it's, it, it is a little bit. It just flattens out, and there's just not the contour to the water that you have up above, not the boulders, none of that stuff, you know, a few more log jams and stuff like that. We're just settling down, and, you know, it can be, 
it can be a little bit deeper. It's not really that deep anywhere down there. The whole river's not that deep, really. And right. so it's just uh, it completely, but pretty much down to the forks. It's pretty flat. It's not, you know, you'll have your little riffles and stuff, but it's not like the upper water. Now, can you float the the whole river, or is that bear yeah, trap? Yeah, you can float. Well, bear yeah. trap canyon, you can float. Uh, boy, I'd, I'd uh, one of my best friends, J.T. France, uh, Johnny, he's the only outfitter down there for fishing. And and I'll tell you, he's been doing it for, I don't know, 35 years. And we talk all the time, and it, it still keeps him, you know, he's always on his A game. And he's yeah. run it more than anybody alive, I'm sure. And he's still cautious on the edge of, you know, fearful. You think about it. And if you don't, if you decide yeah. to run that, and A, you'll, you'll never make it in a hard boat. You'll, I don't care who yeah. you are. You will not make it. <laughs> Most of the rafts don't make it through unscathed. Some do. <laughs> uh, I know people that have flipped in there. Uh, I know one guy really well that did it. And uh, but <laughs> and you're still telling can, them about it, right? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I look in the mirror and talk to him all the time. But uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's that's one that I would really I I wouldn't want anybody to just say they're going to go down there, boy. It's you'd yeah. be on your Spend your money and yeah. hire JT and have him take you so you can fish the whole way. <laughs> but it's uh, it's not something I would. Now, from you could in a raft, you you know, if you're really good, it, it'd be it's a great adventure. I, I still wouldn't. It's dicey. There's no way out. Yeah. You got five miles in there, but there's no really way out of it, right? Yeah. And so yeah. and it's remote. But then you get from there yeah. down, and you can float all the way to the forks. And yeah. So, but there is some talk that they're going to go hoot owl uh, from July 15th through August 15th, which means you won't be able to fish after two. You can float it, but you couldn't fish it uh, from Warm Springs down. But that's only in the peak of the July, you know. And so, yeah, you could float it. And particularly, you can float down the lower stretch. Uh, it, and one thing about that, you know, we were talking temperatures earlier and the, the health of the river. And when I told you that it's predicated on temperature, they base that off a of Black Ford gauge station, which is way downstream. That's below Warm Springs. It's uh, way below the Bear Trap and all that stuff. And so when that water down there gets to mid-70, I think it's 78 or something, is when they pump water down to cool it. But that lower river, you know, it's pretty warm down there. And so yeah. you, you'll have less trout. I mean, you'll, you'll still have trout down there. They can survive through yeah. a lot of stuff. But So when you float down there, you know, you tend to go early, early season, late season, just to stay away from the heat, you know, because it'll drive the fish. It'll just drive your fish up into the, the creeks and stuff like that where it's cooler. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, you can float it. There was a question from Carl Biedemann uh, from Bozeman. And he says, the confluence of the Madison, Jefferson, and Gallatin rivers look like excellent braid fishing. Why is this area often avoided by anglers? That's right just here too, at Three Forks, right? Yeah, it's just too far. I mean, I, I fish down. And, and you don't really have the high fish counts down there. At least I never have. I fish it. I go down there and fish the, the Mo. I'll go up to Jefferson. I go up all of them a little bit. But uh, I just don't see the fish counts down there, probably okay. from water temperature. Uh yeah. And and it's just off the. It, there's a perfect example. I, I probably fished that 
you know, 20 times and not seen a human being. And I mean go down, I'll take my jet boat down, fish all the way up into the, you know, the confluences and wade fish up in there. I've never seen another angler. And and I've caught fish every time. I've just never had the, you don't have the numbers. And I, I tend to fish, right. it, like I said, later in the season, like now on, where it's cool. And, and you know, I'm hunting a single fish, you know, looking for a big fish. But uh, you get other fish, too. But uh, it's just the same thing. It's a long ways. I mean, that's yeah. a long ways from anything. And yeah. so, yeah. Uh, but it's, it is great. It's fun water. I've never had really high fish count days, though. That could be just me. I mean, there there may be. I don't explore it that much. I fish the main river mostly. Yeah. But it's just okay. mostly. It's it's a long ways. I mean, and yeah. you're, you're nothing. You know, you're not yeah. by anything. Uh, Craig in Portland, Oregon, is asking about wading opportunities below Innis Lake. Is there and is there much below Bear Trap Canyon? There yeah. is. It, I, I actually highlighted that when I read these. It's there is a lot of walkway down there, but it's dicey especially from the dam down to the pump house. But then you can you can go down from there, too. But it's a little dicey. You know, you get below, you get down there a ways, and there's more rattlesnakes, which people are always afraid of. I, I hardly ever see any in there, actually. I, don't, it's a, I think it keeps people away. I think they tell you that more for to keep you out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, that stretch between the powerhouse and the, the big whitewater, that's probably the hardest access. Now, you can walk, you can go from Warm Springs up and wade, you know, all the way up to that water. I've done that a lot. Mm-hmm. And you're just walking. And, you yeah. know, there's always that, you know, the thing about the snakes. And it's like, you know, I don't buy into it. But they're everywhere. But, well, they're not up here. But it's, I don't know if that's the part. You know, in the heat of the summer, you'll see people down there, but not very many. Okay. And so, and, so and it's just one of those things. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's really cool water, uh, but you know, you just got to walk. There's no, you yeah. can't drive. I, I swear, if you if you can go anywhere, I don't care where you are, here, anywhere in the U.S. or the world, probably, if you walk 20 minutes from your vehicle, you will be alone. Yeah, <laughs> they would like to be able to see their cars, and so. Yeah. You, if you'll take off, there's plenty of opportunity down there. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, what are some of the major hatches you get on this lower section? Everything. You get, it gets everything. the most incredible Mother's Day hatch you've ever seen in your life. Oh, my God. But it, it gets everything. It's great betas in the spring, you know, gets a massive Mother's Day hatch. Um, you know, gets pretty good salmon fly hatch down there. Uh, everything we get, you know, it's pretty much universal through the whole river. It's a great, you know, great midge fishing in the in the late season and early spring. It's pretty, you know, it's everything we get, PMDs, everything. But the Mother's Day down there are biblical. I mean, you can you can drive along that river and hit one of those, hit that caddis flight, and your windshield is green egg sack from top to bottom. Are you uh, are you getting that hatch at Mother's Day or is no? It off no. No. Yeah, it's each, <laughs> right. each it's tax day. <laughs> it'll be within it'll be within a week or two of it usually, but uh, yeah. but uh, it is it's an incredible hat, and you know it's early. It's the first really big. You went through your early season betas, and your it's your first really big 
you know, it's a legit 16, and uh, it's pretty, it's a feed bag. Those fish are, they're putting it on with those things. It's pretty yeah, special. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of universal. Yellowstone gets it too, and uh, yeah. it's it's incredible. Any favorite flies you have for the, the caddis hatch? No, not really. I mean, I, I fish a, I, I run just a, uh, you know, just something with a necreen egg sack. I, I just, uh, I fish a, a butch sometimes. I fish all kinds. Of, if it skates, I, I like flies that skate because those things are jumpers and they, they run around. I just like things mm-hmm. I can twitch a lot. I, I move my caddis a lot and especially that, that one in the chocolates. I mean, you, it really pays to be able to have a fly that you can move around. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. From, uh, Ennis Lake up to, to Quake and Hebgen Lakes. Um, mm-hmm. how does, How's that? Uh, well, here, here's a good question. Jim in Utah says, uh, "How does the fish population change between your shop and Ennis on the upper? Is it like many tailwaters where the numbers of fish go down and the average sizes go up as you move further down the river?" Um, you know, I from Ennis up. That's one thing that varies. You know, some, and you never know on the fish counts if who is doing what and. I kind of take the whole river as a whole. I would say that the the numbers of, uh, in the upper river, I would say, are higher, um, just because of the pocket water and the amount of places for the fish. Um, I don't think it's dramatically different. It, you know, there I've, you've had I'll have days on the lower river that are just mind-boggling and. You know, same with up here where, you know, one day it's good up here, one day it's not. But because of the way they regulate the water and, the, and the, you know, you've got, you basically you drop 50 feet a mile on this river. And so gradient. And so that's a pretty, that's a pretty, that's why it's hence the, you know, the, the nickname, the 50 mile riffle. And so it doesn't, it's not like you get in the lower end and it gets really, really warm. You know, you might jump a few degrees, but it, it's not like it jumps a 20, you know, degree jump, and so all the fish have to pile up to the dam or something like that. And so it, it's so stable. It's just, it's just the fishery is just incredible, really. And, that, and it's it probably, and you know, who knows? That dam's been there since '06, I think. Uh, I can't remember the actual date, but I think that's what it was. But you know, I think you have so the water temperature quality is so sustained right through that I don't think it really changes that much. I I feel like there's a few less fish in the lower. I think part of that, though, is just that there's just not quite the amount. Boy, I I, I tend to think of bigger fish down low, though, you know, and that's pretty common. Uh, A lot of times you see warmer waters, you see bigger fish down low. You see higher quality uh, numbers up high, in tail race fisheries and stuff like that where you got cooler water but especially your big browns i tend to find them in the kind of froggy warmer i you know not like 80 degree stuff but when you get right. a I just you see less fish and bigger fish just pretty yeah. common but but i wouldn't i wouldn't make it a, a big statement i mean it might be a few hundred fish per mile or yeah. something or or 500 or i don't know yeah. uh but it's pretty damn stable i mean that water below Ennis is what's called Valley Garden. 
in that stretch, you know, that's that's the broadest and the, you know, probably the warmest, and it's right out Annis Lake, and man, it's that is one of my favorite fisheries there is. And what do you get? Runners coming out of uh, Ennis coming up. The oh yeah, area? you get those too. Yeah. But they blow through that pretty. They in the spring I see them. The, the browns tend to blow through it pretty quick and get up. It's not very much water. I mean, a couple miles there that you're, they're going to go through. But in the spring I see them down there. But uh, they tend to get out of you know all the way up pretty quick. Mm. Okay. You'll see a few spawners now, down there in the fall. Is there? Um is the water between Innes and, and uh, Quake Lake, is it uh, pretty much the same as it is down below as far as, uh, you know, the gradient and, and, and no, the type it, of it's, it's, it changes. It just can kind of continuously uh, changes all the way down. I mean, probably the biggest break, probably right about McAtee, right in the middle. That Before you go through the flats, you start, you know, the, it's not quite as big of a, the gradient has changed a little bit, and so the, there's more flats and less giant boulder kind of fast. The biggest gradient's up here, obviously, between Quake Lake and Lions Bridge, and that's that's all the boulder fields, and that's your the most of the white water. And then it just kind of progressively gets less as you go down, and by the time you get to town, it's it's quite broad. There are nice riffles, but they're not ripping like they are up in the upper. Yeah, and, you, and yeah. you run out of the big boulder fields and stuff like that. And, uh, about you have the same that, hatches, same hatches in the upper. Yeah, in yeah. some cases, I think they're better in the lower. I mean, I think that water uh, just depends on the bug, depends on you know. But it's it's pretty even. There's there's it, it is it's truly hard to overemphasize how how what a great bug factory this river is. That's why it's so famous. I mean, that's it's always been that way. You know, but, and um, but, and that's all uh, floatable from uh, absolutely from Quake down yeah. to uh, Ennis. But there is a well, section that not not from not from Lions right? Bridge down. Yeah, Quake down, Quake right Quake to my place is you're not going to float that. Uh, and that's pretty. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty ripping. I mean, a good whitewater people can do it all the time. But I mean, I mean, a good somebody that's good at it could do it. But you wouldn't have a reason to because you're just going to get blown through it. If you're gonna, as far as fishing goes, you want to get away. Yeah, yeah, it's one yeah, thing. Yeah, but yeah. from pretty much Lions Bridge, and it's it's kind of nice, you know, the way they broke that and they made Lions Bridge up to Quake Lake Walk only. Uh, it's good because it's got the most access and it's got it's great walk water. It's it would be if to, even if it was open to fishing, it would be really tough because. You man, you would just be on your oars, never stop, and you aren't going to slow down in it. And so yeah. you would just be bouncing rocks and trying. So, it, and then you get from Lions down, and it's pretty much has changed. That's the first big gradient drop, and from there down, it's very fishable. It's very, you know, you can back row it, you can slow it down, um, okay. and it's 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 a better. And it just progresses, you know. It just it's it's just less gradient, obviously, the further you go. And so, uh, but it's from Lions Bridge down. And that's another thing that's really nice about this river is that as you progress down, it's not there are a lot of accesses. There's only a couple stretches where you have really long floats where you don't have a possibility to get out yeah. for like ten miles. For the most yeah. part, you can break this river into two and a half, three hour floats. And, you know, and just keep doing that. And yeah. so it gives you, you know, a, a lot of opportunity. Huh? 
Yeah. Well, and you can get a lot of opportunities to say, well, there's a bunch of people up high. Well, hell, I'll just go down here in the middle and put in. And, yeah. and have equal, you know, the only change I would make to that, the only the caveat I would say is that you know, when you're chasing salmon flies is the big thing. And that's, and that's when everybody talks about the pressure is the, the salmon flies as a, it's just as a, not really a rule, but they tend to move upstream about five miles a day, right? I mean, three to five miles is just kind of a general progression. You look at the river, they start down low, and, and they hit up here on the 4th of July. That's just almost clockwork. And so, but they start low and they move up. And so what will happen is all of, you know, everybody chasing that hatch goes to that hatch. And if people wanted to get away from that madness, they would go to the marginal part of the hatch below it. If, if that hatch is at Palisades, you know, from, if it's just hit Palisades, everybody wants to be in the front side of it. So if it just hit Palisades, there might be 60 boats in that section that day. Yeah. If you were to go below that 10 miles, you might not see a human being. And you aren't yeah. going to have the massive hatch, but you'll still have the tail out of it. You'll have other bugs. I mean, when the when the salmon flies are going, you can have up to 12, 13 different bugs going at the same time. And so, but the Madison River, I mean, its fame is off of the salmon flies. And so if you get away from it, you 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 get a lot more. You won't have that chaos. You can get but away just from to it be, try. Yeah. Just to be clear, from Lions Bridge up to the State High Bridge, it is you can float it, but you can't fish from the boat while you're floating. Correct. But you can stop and and wait. From, from Quake Lake to Lions, you no, can Quake fish. Down the you, line. Okay. Quake Lake, yeah. If you want to, you know, if you want to take a little whitewater tour, you can go up from Quake Lake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll be a quick float. Uh, (laughs) great water up there though i mean it really everybody looks at that giant water and oh you know there's no way it's got a great edge all the way nobody fishes it it is a little dicey walking but i mean real day what's uh, a a question before we move into the park here and talk about that the um uh the quake lake you know when we went by that this uh, last month it's really kind of um awe-inspiring you know i mean you, you look at that and you look around and look at what happened it's like oh my god yeah 60 year anniversary happened. this year yeah yeah um, what year uh this year 60 it was 60. Uh, august yeah 60 years ago yeah Crazy. is that ever going to wash out yeah it loses uh theoretically it loses four inches a year and so, so it, it, it'll eventually it turn back to a river at some point. I correct. Guess. Yep. Yeah. Not, I don't think we're going to see it. It's a. Yeah. It's a pretty deep on the dam end. It's 100 feet yeah. down there, 70 something. I remember. Interesting. Uh, yeah. There's. Yeah. It's, it'll take a while. And yeah, it's pretty amazing to look at those trees. And yeah. I mean, quite, and talk about a fishery. Oh my God. That, is that is good? <laughs> oh my God! I love that lake. Uh, and it, other than that, other than during the Calabatus, when the Calabatus run, you know, it gets a little busy. It's not very big, and so it gets a little busy uh, if you go up towards, you know, if you go up towards uh, Beaver Creek, it gets busy because that's where most of the Calabatus beds are. But if you, 
just to go out and fish, there's not a prettier spot on the planet. I mean, it, that, it is just, like you said, awe-inspiring. And it's just, if you go, if you don't go towards the bugs during that one little part of the hatch, and it's just a two or three week window, uh, it's incredible fishery. As is, as is Hebgen. Hebgen's another one. It's just, yeah, uh, yeah. but Quake Lake, you know, you can fish that from shore. And for people like the belly boat, uh, great. Just be cognizant of the fact that that wind does come up every day at one o'clock out of the southwest and blows your butt, which is the other direction. <laughs> and, and it never yeah. changes. <laughs> it's, don't think it's you're getting away with there. it. Yeah. Count <laughs> on it. And there, yeah. all those dead trees, you know, you think about it, it's a flooding. I mean, that, that used to be, when you read Charlie Brooks and Joe Brooks, Charlie Brooks in particular, that was where they fished. That was, mm. that was the area. You know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's, it's, Still, you see those trees, some of them are, you know, 60 feet underwater, and their tips of yeah. the trees are still sticking up, and it's mm-hmm. just, they just, they've been there 60 years, they haven't been knocked over, thank yeah, God. looks like out of some movie, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of it. When I first got here, there's a lot of old guys that uh, were here for that, and that they wouldn't fish it. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. just, they, they didn't like the whole... They, I always heard the stories from them all the time. And then, oh, there's yeah. ghosts in that lake. Said, yeah, there's ghosts everywhere. Fishing's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fishing's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, in the park, in Yellowstone National Park, up above Hebgen, um, because that's quite different uh, than it is down below and totally open because it's a park, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And um, so tell us a, a bit about how that fishes differently than the upper and lower section. Well, the, for, first of all, from, we'll just call it from the highway, 191 up uh, from the park, as soon as you get around the, you're, you're not in the park proper, but as soon as you get to Baker's Hole, you're in the park. And so from there up to the Barnes Pools, uh, which are real famous, uh, it's kind of a mini kind of a mini Madison in that stretch. There's, it's kind of a, maybe what, if you were in the east, it would be, it's it's real serpentining, and there's deep cuts, and there's, you know, a handful of boulders, and they're fast riffles, and a lot of uh, back and forth, you know, kind of serpentines back and forth, and really cool little short runs. There, There's very few long runs until you get above Barnes. And, and it's my favorite section. I mean, I just I love that spot. It's got really busy in the last six, eight years. But it's really cool, incredible diversity of hatches. But uh, as you go up the river towards the confluence, or you know, of the Gibbon and the Firehole, which the Gibbon and the Firehole coming downstream uh, connect at junction and make the Madison. And so... From there down, you know, from the Barnes Pools up to Junction or from Junction down to Barnes Pools, it's rather broad, you know, not a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say it has a lot of character to it, you know, a lot of, it's not very deep, you know, maybe three feet in a good spot and kind of meanders. It's very, it's much more placid up there, not as, not as riffly, it's one giant riffle, but not like really fast. They're, They're kind of soft on the surface. You see a lot more moss in the water up there. It's gorgeous. It, it's just it's gorgeous water, 
but it's it's broader, big meadows, lots of big meadows up there. Constantly see elk up in those meadows uh, all summer. You know, you'll see them, buffalo, everything's trouncing around up there. When you go down from the barn schools, though, that's that's kind of where a lot of people uh, like to fish because there's a little bit more contour to the water. You you know, you got lots of cut banks and and a lot of curves to the water, whereas up above just seems to you know broadens out quite a bit and you just don't meadows, have uh, yeah yeah lots meadows. of meadow fishing beautiful yeah. beautiful yeah uh, gorgeous yeah yeah but no uh, it's just a lot uh, more weeds up there too I think uh, yeah as soon as you get above the barns pools you know you start seeing it you just it broadens out and just starting it's wide you know and there it just it, lots of weedy stuff it's great bug hatches I mean just they're just incredible fishery up there and right, so right. obviously the closer you get to the and you know that's the influence of the you know the geothermal. Obviously, you got the fire hole, the fire hole and the gibbon make that thing, and so the fire hole is pretty warm. It doesn't have the name for it's not by mistake, and right, so right. it and that's why you've got that that really beautiful green moss in there that you know it's just yeah takes a while to cool yeah. it down and get out of that. And that's uh that part above Hebgen is where you get what they call the runners right in the fall yeah yeah that's uh, where everybody goes to fish the spawners up there yeah uh, and that yeah. and that happens earlier that's that's a unique thing and the other thing they get up there are eagle river uh, fall spawning rainbows which mm. are really hot they are they're pretty cool uh yeah. i mean they look like a spring steelhead they get all red and and, and they actually spawn in the fall so with the you know same time the brown trout well relatively close to the brown trout and so You've got both going up there. You got the big browns coming out of Hebgen, and and they move up very, which I've never figured that out because generally you think of cooler temperatures, but the water's warm and it's it's frequently still really warm in September, but the fish move up there earlier than they do down here, and so uh, it's it's pretty incredible. But it's it's gotten really busy. That's one where that one's hard to outwalk them. There's just yeah. uh, they come from all directions. There's there's a a lot of access, and uh, in that lower stretch, I'm not positive how far it is. Uh, somebody's gonna beat me up on this one. I think it's about probably five miles of water. I guessing. I don't know, heck, I don't know. I've walked it a hundred times, but um, from Baker's up to Barnes, and like I said, it's just, it's actually, I actually have a video on that somewhere that uh, Gene Herring did um, that shows that when he walks it through it. You should know exactly how long that little stretch is, but that's generally where you go to see, you'll see most of the people fishing in that, the Barnes pools down to Baker's, and uh, it, yeah. it, and it's it's just, inc- oh, God, it's, I've seen fish in that stretch that just don't seem possible. It's kind of like, yeah. You know, if you're going to see a 30-inch fish, that's where it's going to be. It's going to be in there in the fall. And, but you yeah, aren't going to be right. alone looking at them, I can assure you. <laughs> that's for sure, yeah. yeah. Let me take I, a I, quick break, and uh, and then we have a bunch of questions on techniques and, and so forth. So cool. um, I'll be right back, and uh, we'll, we'll address those questions. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake. They derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. 
From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than just a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack revolve, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at uh, BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kelly Gallup about the Madison River. Uh, if you'd like to ask Kelly a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box and send us your questions. Uh, let me see what we got in there for questions, too, before there. Uh, oh, uh, this is an off-the-wall question from Phil uh, McCartney. He says, is there a place you want to fish that you've not fished before? Iceland. Iceland. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Um, it just coincides uh, with my ha with all the time I have to actually work. So that's on my yeah. bucket list. And I also want to do. Uh, there's a few tropical areas that I want to. Uh, I want to go do Dorado. That that'll. Yeah. But I think Iceland will probably be before that one. But yeah, the two of them. Where all my um, buddies go. Uh, Kip Webb uh, in Cameron, Montana asks, uh, Kelly, <laughs> since you're first, you know this guy. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Yeah. I know a few of these guys down there, too, that I'll get to them yeah. in a minute. But So what uh, does Mr. Webb Kelly, have to say? Since your first streamer book, what one thing would you say has changed the most about streamer fishing? Uh, the amount of guys like you that um Let's see. <laughs> the thing that's changed most is the, this is actually a good, Kip, uh, and full disclosure, is my partner in the Bahamas Lodge, and he's my neighbor. Oh. <laughs> you know, you ever see that tool time guy? You remember the guy that walked to the fence? Yeah. He, he, uh, that's my, yeah. that's my, he's my Kip. <laughs> he's, he's the guy looking over the fence. But uh, the thing I've seen change most, for sure, is the it's the youth group. It's the number of people, and not just youth, but it's been massive on the younger anglers. But the amount of enthusiasm that came on. I mean, when we wrote that first book to now, back in the day before you know before the internet was really going, and when everybody was emailing, and you're still getting letters. I would get a letter a week from somebody over seventy. Uh, you know, hundreds of them from younger people. But somebody over 70 said they were they got bored with fishing and now they're doing this and they're just totally rejuvenated, which was the coolest thing for me. I don't know why, just to think that you could teach somebody that saying, you know, I've been doing this since before you were alive, you punk, and but now I really like it again. That was the coolest part. But the difference is, the biggest difference is just the number of young anglers that are so stoked, and they're so. In the old days, streamer fishing was basically it was a redheaded stepchild. You didn't do it. You just you did it when nothing else worked, and you're bored, and you found some big streamer in your pocket that you forgot about, and you yeah. threw it out. Right nowadays, 
It's dedication. That's what they're doing. It's completely dedicated. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Well, let's talk about uh, some techniques here. Um, Phil in Kentucky, Phil likes to ask a lot of questions. He's got a lot of good questions. <laughs> good. Uh, he says, have you found that the techniques you develop to get big trout to strike flies that intrude into their vicinity are effective in lots of fishing situations, no matter what kind of fish and where you find them? If so, what are some examples in which that approach has worked out well for you? Absolutely. And, you know, in full honesty, I mean, if you if you read the books, I talk about how this all came from bass fishing. And so the, the mm. style of invasive uh, reactionary bite thing, the thing that we brought to the table was that we're, we're no longer, like, passively going and swinging, which – uh, you know, a fly, we're going in and we're, we're doing a different. I get a lot of flack from, you know, I'll talk about not swinging because, you know, a lot of the trout spay guys like to swing, and I like, I do too, but for steelhead. But for this style of fishing, we're generally short cast, really fast cast, invasive, you know, usually from a boat, not always, but it's generally cross stream and it's real reactionary. And really, if you look at Dorado fishing, if you look at a lot of kuda, anything that's a pike fishing, that's all the same thing. It's it's like you're going in and you're triggering a response, and that's and essentially that's how I got started on this was watching a video, not video, it's a TV show, and of a bass pro fishing, walking the dog. It was a topwater thing, and it, he wasn't actually not necessarily. It's what he said. He said that you know you. you you make them do it. You, it's a reactionary thing. They're, they're set up. They're dour. They don't want to come up to the top, but we make them because it's kind of an inv- invasion. So mm-hmm. you can essentially do this with any fish. I mean, they'll, they're virtually all fish that you fish are predators. They eat. I mean, bluegills are. I mean, I just did a seminar. You know, we just got done with our streamer schools, a month of them. And then one of the slides I use in there, slide, that's a date in yourself, one of the pictures in the PowerPoint is a bluegill, and he's got a, and the bluegill's probably nine inches long, and he's got an entire night crawler down his face, right? Uh-huh. Well, that's that thing as long as its body. And so he has no problem doing it, which tells you that almost all fish will do this. And so uh, I think you could cross it over to virtually any fish on the planet. I mean, yeah, any yeah. predatory fish. You always see, uh, you know, these, and I, I know you've probably experienced it, where you, you catch a fish and he's got a tail sticking out of his mouth, mm-hmm. you know. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. hey, haven't you had enough, buddy? You know, and I'll take one more. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. And I'm going to do a... this show coming up um, on uh, fishing uh, mice, and um, mm-hmm. Richard Plasky, uh was telling me the other night that um, they, they – um, killed a fish, uh, I don't know where this was, but when they opened this fish up, it had 16 mice in it. Probably in New Zealand. Yeah. And, I and did, it's like, you know. I did a, I do a lot of, used to, in Michigan, I did a ton of mouse, and, and now I got my, a lot of the guys that work for me did a, Jeremy and uh, Chris, they both fished a ton of mice, and one of their buddies, Danny Green, he's a, He's kind of a psycho. He's he's dedicated. I mean, he he has not fished anything but a mouse day and night all year, and he's caught really? some whopper fish. And that's the one thing about mousing is that in the daytime you don't get as many blowups, but you get more positive eats. You'll get you'll they'll eat it in the day. 
Yeah. And so, and it's the same. I, when I was in Michigan, I, I had a guy, I, I've been a tax trimmer all my life. And back in the day when we were still doing a lot of skin mounts, I had a guy bring me a fish that was 19 inches long once. And I, and I knew the guy. He's he kind of a neighbor down the street. And I said, the hell did you kill that for? I said, it's, you know, he had two fish over eight pounds on his wall. And he goes, well, look at it. It's so fat. He says, but it was dead. He says, it, it didn't revive. And we opened up and it had five shrews in it five mice uh, in the stomach, and yeah. it had three babies and two adults, which told me total reaction. I mean, this thing was, yeah. it was purging out hex flies. It was a night fish, and there's fish in the hex hatch. It's purging uh, hexes out its gills and basically died and ate his, and it had five mice in its stomach. So oh my God. that's reactionary yeah. stuff. That's like, oh, I'm going to eat everything. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Alan Ruff in New York uh, says, why does Kelly not like to invert his hook, like Clouser or Gotcha style, when he creates streamers? That's a, that's a great question. I highlighted yeah. that one, too. Uh, several reasons, Alan. Uh, first of all, I don't ever fish my flies on the bottom. I'm not a, my flies are generally fishing the upper 20 inches of the water column. Uh, I very seldom see really big fish in deep water. And so uh, I don't need them to be weedless. And from a physical standpoint, the, the the structure of the lower mandible is much has more detail to it. And I'd rather the hook was down there. Uh, just the top of the mouth is rather smooth, and I would rather the hook was down. I mean, that's the real reason. But I don't, and I do invert a couple. I mean, a lot of my like my jig hooks and stuff like that, sometimes I'll invert some of those. For like the Nancy originally was done upside down. I don't really drag it. I don't fish it in, don't fish weeds much. Um, and so I don't have a purpose for it. And everything I do has a purpose. If I, if it needed to be, I would, but I really, and especially with a crayfish, because a crayfish is generally, a fish will come down. That's one of the few times a fish will go down to get a, uh, something. Mm-hmm. And there it wouldn't bother me as much because they kind of bite it. They just they kind of attack them. But mostly I get those, even my crayfish flies, are, they eat it on the drop as I, you know, I jig those a lot. I don't mm-hmm. strip everything. I don't strip hardly anything, actually. And so... I prefer it to be mostly it's just so I like I like to hook on the lower jaw because there's more detail to it. There's more structure down there, so it's something to get yeah. stuck in. That's the okay. real reason. We got a bunch more questions, so you're gonna have to move fast on me here. Got okay. it. Kelly. This one will be this one will be easy. <laughs> I know this guy too. This next one, I Steve Bourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah, you know Steve, Steve Bourne, don't yeah. ever, don't ever. He owes me money. Don't ever lend this guy money. <laughs> just telling you. <laughs> Okay. Well, anyway, he wants to know if you have any insights uh, on differences you see between men and women fly fishers, styles, objectives, values, teachability, any other things over the years? Well, he's a a perfect guy to ask this question because I do see some differences. uh, Not like the old days. The first one would be, Steve, that women actually listen. You should try that. Uh, they, they, they learn much quicker, which I like. That's why I like. They, and that's, you know, that's, I've been teaching fly fishing for forever. And the one difference is, is that women don't have perception of power, so they don't, uh, and they just do, they listen. And guys like Steve, they have trouble with that. But, 
Uh, that, that, <laughs> I can, I can be, he, he, and this is a good guy. It's a, uh, born. Oh my God, you don't know. Him. Okay, yeah, maybe. Uh, but objectives and values, teachability, stuff like that. I don't really think so. It used to be a little different, but uh, anymore, I think everything's crossed over so much that uh, I don't know. It's pretty. Okay. It's pretty straight up. Teachability-wise, it's. Uh, I just have always said that women learn quicker just because they yeah. they don't casting have that power. Casting instructors thing. say that they usually uh, learn pick up casting a lot easier because they don't. Yeah, they, I mean the I, they do, they, and they just yeah. it's that power thing. Yeah, uh, CJ in Connecticut says I visited the slide in this past September, and if anyone visits that area, it's a must see. I walked in, and there was Kelly working on the phones and booking trips. I wanted to say hello, but he was working fast and furious. <laughs> Next time. Uh, hey. But what a great shop. Uh, Kelly, years ago you introduced me to drop shotting via one of your online videos. Uh, gave it a try, and there are times when it saved the day as a fishing tactic. With the popularity of Euronymphing and 10 and 11-foot rods, uh, three-weight rods, do you think drop shotting still has a place in time? Uh, and what could you describe the conditions when the drop shot method might be more effective than going euro? Great question. Uh, and sorry I couldn't say hi, CJ. Uh, just stuck around. Uh, really, there's not, you know, I'm not a fan of one anything. You know, I have no, uh, we've been, we've been euro fishing in the U.S. since, I mean, if you go back in time and look at in Michigan and New York and all the eastern stuff, I mean, we were drop shot or Euro fishing, weighted fly. If you go look at Charlie Brooks was doing it, he was using uh -huh. a tight line, tight line. But like one of the first, Joe Joe Humphreys did one of the first uh, TV shows. On, I think it was the first fly fishing ESPN right above the shop here. And he was using monofilament then, and he took a lot of shit for it. Because yeah. you know, you're not fly fishing in Euro. And it, so the Euro thing is not, and they're really not that different. I mean, the difference, I right. think, I think drop shotting is always superior to it personally just because the fly is never on the bottom. And it does, and if you're pissed off that I said that, just try it, both of them. I don't, I do both. I Euro fish. <laughs> I have to tell you, when you say something like that, people get mad because they Euro fish. Euro's great. But your anchor fly is on the bottom. With drop shotting, your fly is in the fish's face. The fish is, you know, if you're really good at Euro nymphing, uh, and, and it has its, it has its, uh, limitations also like here where it's really fast it's really hard to do a really good euro like whereas it's not hard to do a drop shot so it's really fast water i think it's an uh it's a nuance now because you know this thing's been around forever we've been euro fishing or euro fishing that's not euro fish, it's just weighted flies we've yeah. been doing it for decades it's forever. just catching yeah. on now and so yeah. suddenly the drop shot thing for me is that it keeps the fly in the fish's zone and it keeps the fly in the bottom and I, you know, the weight on the bottom so I can feel it. You're still leading your fly. It's the same thing. You can still go full mono if you want to. That was the thing in the day that back in the 70s we all did that. We ran, you know, didn't do drop shot necessarily, but you ran straight mono and then your leader and then we got crap for not having fly line. And so then Ray Schmidt and Brad, uh, Bruce Richards was, Bruce Richards designed all of the scientific English lines for years. Those guys came up with those 022 running lines, 022, 027, which are now considered Euro lines and they're competition lines. 
That was yeah. done in the 70s. And so, I, but to the question proper, I think you should do both. I mean, yeah. I, prefer yeah. to, I prefer to Euro style with an anchor fly on moderate water. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing, you're still leading it still. The leader configurations are pretty much the same. And then if, if it's fast like here, I like the drop shot method because I can get, I can anchor down quicker and still use small flies. So, for example, if it's a betas hatch like today, unbelievable betas hatch today, everything's a 20, right? So, and then I got midges, which are also 20s. And so I can get down there with my drop shot and have two 20s on what they're eating. I don't have to have a heavy tungsten, you know, yeah. quill to get down. I can have the actual fly. And I got both flies in the zone. So yeah. don't I get was, mad. Uh, Just try both. You know, try yeah. both. Don't use one anything. You should never limit yourself. Yeah, you yeah the um, one of your – I think it's one of your um, – uh, video, your DVDs I was watching, uh, you lay out all these uh, setups on the wall. Yeah, nymphing by the Which, numbers. Mm-hmm. What is it? Nymphing by the numbers. It's an nymphing old video. We shot that. Yeah. And that yeah. one has a drop shot style, which calls yeah. it the upstream. Yeah. And, and that's another one. I used to do that a lot with uh, twist-ons in shallow water. And I would actually run the drop shot two foot above, you know, and you cast it upstream in shallow water, you know, riffly wire like, and almost no weight whatsoever, and that would, and then you'd kind of high stick your line at you, and you're basically dapping your flies, and so your fly, this is in 20 inches or less of water, and so your lead would be way above it, but your flies are in the exact zone you want them, and so one's not dragging on bottom, I don't have a a fly in the weeds, I got my weight in the weeds two foot above it, and you could actually, if you were good at it, you could hold those flies in the exact zone you wanted them. And that's, you know, but it, that was a drop shot. I started drop shotting actually in Michigan because I lost so many damn flies, and there's so many trees there for steelhead. Yeah. And I started drop shotting, on, and, on using, and you had to have it on a four-inch loop. Somebody's going to write in and say, you can't do that there. Well, if you have it on a four-inch loop, you can. And so, and so, I just didn't lose any flies. That was yeah. the biggest thing. I just didn't lose them. Yeah. Um, here's a um, uh, Jim from Cincinnati, and we're going to go long tonight, but I want to finish up these questions, if, if you don't mind, Kelly, because no um, there's some good questions. Uh, it says, I always buy tapered leaders with tippet size to my fly, and I'll try to adjust it to whatever the fishing uh, situation is. Now, with all the talk about mono rigs, which you were just talking about, Mm-hmm. Billy, um, I'm questioning what I'm doing. How should you fish a tapered leader? Should I have a specific leader for different situations? Absolutely. So that's the big thing. That's the difference between technical nymphing and the Euro style or drop shotting. Uh, the problem with a tapered leader is when now, and, and a little of this has to, but not completely, even with a with an indicator. Now, understand with drop shot and Euro style. You're not using indicators, and so you're trying to keep your line as light as possible so that it gets to the bottom with the lightest amount, of, you know, so you can get your flies to the bottom or near wherever you want them. It doesn't have to necessarily be on the bottom, but where they are. And what happens when you use a tapered leader is that that's an extruded leader. The butt section can be 40-pound test. You know, it's a big and, – and tapered leaders are designed for dry flies – 
and it's a reduction of energy so that the leader's fat in the butt, so as it gets thinner, you lost your energy, and your fly lays out and lays on the surface. So when you do that in reverse, now you want the fly to go under the water and through the surface. And so when you've got that big butt section, it slows your descent. And so you slow your rig down. Now you have to have, it's more cumbersome. You have to have more lead to get you down, whereas if it was all one size, you'd split that water very quickly. And so that's why the new system, you know, I hate to call it new, but new to us, this new Euro thing, yeah. is it's thin, so it gets down quickly. So if you're using, if you're doing a true, if you're anchor flying, I mean, I, used, I guided Vladdy one time, one of the world champion, and, and fished them up here, and, and he, you know, he was using, the, back then the Vladdy worm was huge, right? And it was, it was right. this big, it was just weight, basically, it's all it was. And it was, you know, getting hung up constantly on the bottom. It's on a kind of a keel-style hook, kind of a bent hook, the, like the wireworm hooks. And so, but they're really heavy. But the idea was to get away from that, to get your flies down. So that's where this, you know, the tungsten beads came in and the lighter and lighter and lighter line. And the big thing is, is not having it up further in your system so it slows your system down. So to your answer your question, you would want the tapered leader. If you're on an indicator, generally, you know, your your indicator is going to keep it, you're going to be up in the middle of that leader, so it's not going to slow your, your leader down sinking as much. But it's still better if you're going to, you, you have to adapt the system to the, the system. You cannot, mm-hmm. like putting a, a, a nine-foot 4X leader is going to slow your system down. It's going to be, first of all, it's going to be, it's going to have a, it wouldn't. It won't sink even close to as fast as the straight mono will, and yeah. that's why you're not going to do it. So, keep the one for your dry fly, your swings, and your, and it'll be fine. But if you're going to do, if you're going to dry, and even on my drop shot system, if you look back, there was never a tapered leader in it. It was mm-hmm. it was 4x to 12 pound. What I used was what they call ciders now, which we did back in. 100 years ago, was I use 8 or 12 pound gold strand because it's really soft and it's cheap and, uh, yeah. and, and so I would have 4 use that. Yeah. yeah, I use 4X all the way, you know, like it could be 6 feet up to it because I never fish deeper than 6 feet and so it'd be straight 4X to the cider and then up to you could keep going if you want to use fly line and just so you know, on this whole thing on these long leaders, this all comes from competition fishing and so you, the, the Spaniards were trying to use the really long leaders. They're using 30-foot leaders, right? Well, at some point you're not. At some point you're spin fishing, and so the rules <laughs> changed, and now you can just be, you can only have twice your rod length for a leader. And so now we're going into the, and that's when you started seeing the, the supposedly new lines that Ray and Bruce designed in the 70s, uh, these 022 running lines, and so that's your fly line. So essentially, yeah. everybody's just trying to get it. You know, you're just tight line, and you're you're yeah. not casting thing a long way, so you don't need the bigger line. Yeah. You know, you're you're basically just right okay. in front of yourself. A couple more questions. Robert Silver, New Mexico. He says, "You are the streamer expert. Can you describe how you fish streamers in a, a moving water? I'm trying to picture how far and across and how far upstream to cash cast when I fish streamers. Also, trying to picture what I should be getting the streamer to do by mending the line." after the cast? Great question. Um, first of all, one of the biggest misconceptions of streamer fishing is that you cast long. You should be reading your water and not casting long. 
That is the, I mean, that is the difference between traditional old school streamer fishing with a swing is cast fire and let it swing passively through. And that's the difference in the styles that I, that I teach is that I cast perpendicular to the flow, so straight across stream or straight upstream, but I never cast out long and swing a fly. Fly goes straight across the, we're just, we're just going to talk about uh, cross stream. Cross stream, uh, I tend, I want to see the water. I want to see, I want to know where the fish is. Generally, it's less than 30 feet. Even from a boat, 40 would be a huge cast. And then, but I'm going to retrieve straight back at me. And so I want the fly to move erratically in small movements. I don't, uh, you know, I'm just coming straight across. And so the mend thing is out the window. There is no mend. If you, you, you throw a cross stream and you stop, you stop your rod low and keep it downstream, that way there's tension on your line. The surface current will catch the line. And everything you do will move your fly. But you're not going to cast it way out there. 30 feet is a great cast. Read your water. Stalk more. Hopeless. Just, just, just don't, don't cast everything. It's not. It's more about reading your water. You can get right on. Most of your fish are going to be within 20 feet of shore, or in some sort of structure on a ledge, and so perpendicular to the fish and straight back at you. Okay. Uh, Dan in Miami says, for nymphing with a lot of weighted flies and shot, what are the pros and cons of yarn type nymph indicators versus plastic types? Can you comment on the New Zealand wool and, and plastic polyarn? I love that New Zealand wool system. That thing is yeah. uh, the uh, – and I really like the ability to change it up. And, and so uh, especially in soft water, I love that stuff. And, and, and there's no – you know, it's, it's still a suspension style uh, of nymphing. You're still suspension, holding the fly up with something, Right. And so the ability to change that to you know, smaller amounts, cut it down, add it back, that New Zealand system is, is spectacular. I love it. Now, the difference is, is, that, is just what I just said. It's your ability to, to change it up, make it smaller, make it bigger. Uh, I think it's, it's probably about, I mean, maybe it's a little bit more sensitive, I'd say, just because you have that ability to change it. And where the uh, with a and it doesn't mess style. your lineup either. Yeah, well, the new ones, the, the new ones don't. That that slot, the new uh, airlock style, you know, with the the little nut on it, oh, they, they, those uh, yeah. just go right straight through it. But uh, and if you're using the thingamabobber styles, I always pegged those anyway. You take a just like you would an egg. You take a, a toothpick. So you run your line mm-hmm. in the hole and run a toothpick and break it off. And so it won't mess your lineup, and you can adjust it. And that's the thing, the superiority over these things, over a lot of them with that New Zealand style, is the fact that you should be moving your indicator. It's one of the things that people do wrong most when they're stream, or nymph fishing, I mean, is that they set their indicator and leave it. And you have to change that, just like your weight. You have to keep adapting to every single spot you fish. And I mean as you're walking, not that day. You move to another run and it's two foot deeper, you better move that yep. indicator because otherwise you're not putting your flies where they belong. And so, I, and that's why that wool versus, and the, you know, and there's a lot of ways to do that. That's just the New Zealand's just a really, uh, they kind of fixed the, the problems. There's a lot of ways to do it, but I, I really like the yarn. But as yep. far as simplicity goes, overall from a boat and stuff like that, 
the airlock styles, the airflows, they're great. I, I like yeah. them for that. But if I was techy fishing, I'd be on the, the New Zealand style. Yeah. We'll, Okay, one last one. Jim in Utah, tell us uh, the history of your development of the outstanding and unique gallop cripple pattern with the single wing and the hook you bend in a curve. It's deadly effective and different than any other cripple. How did you come up with that and where? Uh, came up with that, which uh, thanks for uh, somebody that saw the cripple book. <laughs> the first twenty, the first twenty years of my life, I was a technical dry guy. That's all we did in Michigan. We didn't fish nymphs or streamers. But uh, that fly, uh, I should have wrote that one first instead of afterwards. But uh, that fly was designed on the Bourbon River, which is the birthplace of the Adams, and probably about a quarter mile from where the Adams first touched the water. Uh, and that one. It was from an example, the best angler I've ever, uh, in the new book, I, I've got a thing in there about Dave Ellis, who's the single best fly angler I've ever known. And he would make comments about how things didn't look, how we thought they looked, but how they really looked, right? And I saw him one time with his head underwater looking at flies, and he, this guy figured out a long time ago that, one particular hatch, the sulfurs would hit the water with a 40-degree cant to their wing, and if you had one laying on the water, they wouldn't eat it. And this guy would just, he was just so above everybody I knew. He and Carl Richards were really good buddies. They went to college together, and and he, he and Doug and Carl all grew up with this the whole selective trout one, and Carl and Doug wrote it. But anyway, he, I, I took that to heart, and I went out, and I was getting, I was having a particularly good night, but the fish were eating with a different cadence. They'd eat my fly harder than the rest, and it started bugging me because I knew they shouldn't do that. And so basically, long story short, is I, I got in the water and looked at them, and I couldn't think, so I went back and I saned a, a bunch of them. And what I did was I was looking at those bugs, and I realized that about 70% of that particular, so there was just under 200 bugs in that seine. Just shy of 70% of them had one wing down, but the really big difference was they all had a radius to their body. There was not one, even most of the ones that were laying there flat with two wings down, most of them, 70% had one wing on the water. They all had a curve to their body. And so... It just kind of bit me right in the butt right as I was standing there, and I went, because I threw a, another spinner in the water with, this was a tray in my living room, by the way, or my kitchen, I mean, I had saned all these bugs, and I took them home, and was <laughs> looking at them, and I put a spinner down in the water, and it just looked electrocuted. It looked so stiff, and then I realized that almost all the bugs, 70% or so, had a radius to their body and one wing down, and then I started looking at the duns, and even a dun, I mean, especially in the west where you've got a little bit of wind or chop on the water, they don't sit straight with their bodies like our hooks are. And so all I did was match what I saw. I, I put the radius to the body, uh, put a single wing down. Some of the original ones had a wing up and a wing down, but I found that it didn't make, other than tracking, it was a little easier. But essentially that's where it came from. It was just a observation and it just like you said in there it's uh it's become like when things are tough it's just a go-to it's mm. it's a code cracker because and if you start looking at your insects 
all of them, even the duns, if you look at them on the water, you'll see that as they're floating, they keep twisting their bodies. They don't just sit with really, you know, straight bodies. They bend their bodies a little bit, and mm-hmm. and that's where it came from. And, and as a spinnerfall, it's pretty much, that's about the only book. I haven't hard to fish anything else for 20 years. It's a yeah. real code cracker. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Good one to end the show on tonight. Uh, cool. Yeah, we got to wrap it up here. We ran long, but I wanted to get those questions in because we had some good cool. ones. Cool. So. Yeah. Well, so um, stick with me a little longer, Kelly. We're going to give away okay. your book, um, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout uh, 2. And um, thanks for providing that tonight. We're also going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing in Time Journal. So uh, let's do that right now. But uh, just a reminder, before everyone leaves tonight, if you'd, before you leave the website, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away some of these prizes. Um, the winners for the drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, uh, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show, and uh, then you'll have a chance to win some of these great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So fire up the database here and do our random picks. Um, but first, we're going to be giving away one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Um, uh, and uh, you can learn about what they do, what they're involved in, and, and, and you can get involved. So, um, Winner for that is Joe DePinto in Colorado. Joe DePinto. So congratulations, Joe. And um, thanks for... Uh, signing up for that, and uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll get that information out to you after the show. Uh, now we'll give away that one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal from Amato Books. Uh, check with Amato Books. Go to amatobooks.com. Check out all their, their periodicals, their books. They've got a lot of great things offered there. And our winner there for that is Robert Silver in New Mexico. Robert Silver in New Mexico. So congratulations, Robert and Joe. Glad you were winners tonight, and uh, hope you enjoy your, your subscription and membership. Um, now we'll give away Kelly's book, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout 2. Uh, we do have a link on our homepage for Kelly's book. You can click on that. It will take you right to Kelly's uh, site at Slide-In, and, um, and you can pick up his book there if you don't win it right now. So uh, let's see who's going to win it here. Um, Hold on just a second. I've got to clear my queue here. Um, and make sure there's nothing else in there. So on our homepage, you go to our homepage. You're going to put your answer in there with your name and the location there. And, uh, and then we'll see who wins. So the question is, we were talking about your um, own nymphing, and we were talking about drop shotting. Which one did uh, Kelly think you should use? <laughs> There's your dog. He knows. He knows. He goes, I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah, that's that guy next door, Kip, that walked in. Oh, oh. He's leaning on the, the end of your desk at, now, right? Yeah, he's at the fence looking his head over the thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm clearing the queue here trying to see if we've got an answer. This is kind of a tricky one. Uh and uh, we'll see if we get a winner here. 
and uh, we've got some answers coming Kip's in. Kip's waving his hand shot. in the air. No, drop shot is <laughs> not it. Uh, another drop shot. Another drop shot. Another drop shot. And, uh, and it looks like Phil, you're good. Phil, you're good. Phil McCartney in, in Kentucky uh, came in with both, <laughs> and that was there the you correct go. answer. That's right? It. That's whatever yeah. is the right tool in the right place at the right time, and that's and that's the best one, right? Exactly. Don't limit exactly. yourself. Yeah. So Phil, again, send me your uh, send me your information. I know you. He's down in Kentucky. I bet you there's some good streamer fishing down there. Um, and um, uh, I know you're going to enjoy that book. So send me your address again, uh, Phil, and we'll, we'll I'll get that over to Kelly, and uh, he'll get that, that book out to you. So, Kelly, hey, really appreciate you being on the show again. We've done a bunch of shows together. It's always fun. And um, uh, thanks for sharing all your expertise with us again. Well, it's a pleasure. Got a great group. I always enjoy it. Yeah, well, good, good. And um, hopefully all of you have found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on our top-line menu. Uh, you'll see uh, all our shows I've done over. This is the 302nd show I've done, so wow. quite a few. And I think Kelly was one of the people in the first year I did this, which was like yep. 13 back. years ago or something. Yep. So uh, time is flying by. <laughs> but check it out. You can search for a lot of those other ones. We did one on streamers with Kelly, so just uh, stick in some keywords there, and you'll find all kinds of great shows. Um, our next broadcast will be on November 6, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Misty Dillon, and our topic for the show will be Golden Masir. Uh, Misty has been guiding and traveling in Pakistan, India, Nepal, Bhutan, and Myanmar since 1994 in search of the golden masir. And uh, these fish are highly developed bioindicator fish species that swim in rivers across the rugged Himalayan foothills. So listen in and learn about this incredible fish and what it takes to bring one to the net. Uh, I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amado Books, um, Wickray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.